0: Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org this morning uh, we get to continue on in our series of the gospel of john and i am he and uh, we're actually going to be closing out john chapter 9 today so if you have your bibles you can flip open to that you can check it out on your phone if you go digital whatever it may be but we're going to be starting in verse 13 so you can at 13 all the way through the end of the chapter so you can go to that real quick um and i'm just gonna gonna kind of set the stage a little bit for what we're talking about um because for me Personally, um, I've always had a little bit of a difficult time sharing my faith with people. Any hands in here who say, yep, that's a difficult thing for me, okay, good. Had more uh, enthusiastic hand raises right over here. Like, yep, thank you. Um, so that's, that's been a difficult thing for me, especially when I was younger. I can remember uh, I decided that I was going both feet in with Christianity, with following Jesus at the end of my senior year. Um, and so I moved away. I decided I was gonna turn Chico State into a Christian college um and i didn't unfortunately um but uh but i remember going there and not really understanding the best way to be able to communicate my faith not understanding the best way to talk to other people uh, about what it was i believed in that sort of thing so i remember just shouting matches that i would get into with people um, I, I remember specifically a time my uh, my roommate, his name was Joe, Joe and I were very different people. Um, and so when you're, when you're hey, hey, any seniors who are in the room who are going away to college and expecting a roommate that you're gonna be best friends with, normally doesn't happen. Uh, they actually have you fill out this form to say, hey, what are your likes and your dislikes and that sort of thing. And they try to do their best to be able to pair you with somebody uh, who has kind of, you know, kind of a similar personality and that sort of thing. And so I got there, and my roommate uh, was literally the exact opposite of me. Everything that we stood for was on completely on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, you know, I would read my Bible and that sort of thing. And uh, I one time walked into him rolling joints on top of my Bible. Um, and so different, just different thing. You know, we value different things. Uh, that's a true story. Uh, but, uh, but I remember having conversations with him and him and I just arguing and arguing and other people in my hall just arguing and arguing and, and no resolution being made whatsoever because I was so focused on not what Jesus did in my life and how he transformed me, but I was really more focused on on what they were doing wrong and what you are doing wrong, what you are doing wrong, what you are doing wrong. If you could just listen to the things that I have to tell you, you would be correct. Now, that's not wrong. That's not like a a wrong thing for us as Christians to hold the belief that we live a life that is worth living. Scripture tells us that. It's very clear about the way that we should live a healthy, biblical, Christian life. Yeah, it is the correct way to live. So hear me that I'm not saying don't express that. What I am saying is maybe examine your methods a little bit when sharing Jesus. Because when I was in those shouting matches, man, everybody walked away further away from God, even me. Like I walked away angry and frustrated. I'm like, I'm doing my best to share my faith. How come people aren't aren't coming to faith? And I realized that I was yelling, (laughs) I was like, oh wait. I probably know why people uh, aren't coming to faith. And and so I don't know where you are. I don't know if this has been an issue in your life because it's very clear in scripture that if you do follow Jesus, you are supposed to talk to other people about the fact that you do follow Jesus. And so I don't know where you are in the entire spectrum. Maybe you're like me and uh, you came to faith uh, at a very early age. I never remember not going to church Uh, I accepted Christ when I was eight years old in my bottom bunk as I was praying alongside my mom. Like maybe, maybe that's you, but maybe you have a difficult time being able to express how God has transformed your life since then. Because for me, I don't remember anything prior to following Jesus. And so because of that, I've always felt like my testimony, my story was a little bit lacking because I didn't come from this like, drug-abused family. I didn't have a really hard upbringing. None of this stuff was incredibly difficult for me. You know, and then I found Jesus when I was eight years old, real hard time in my life, being eight. And, you know, the hardest thing I was dealing with was multiplication. And then all of a sudden, from that point forward, I continued to pursue God with my life. And so I've always felt like my story wasn't necessarily a compelling story to be able to share. My transformation wasn't a compelling one to be able to share. Or maybe you're, you haven't even come to faith yet. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know what? My story is Jesus isn't a part of it, and that's okay. And maybe you're somewhere in the middle. I don't know what it is. But I will say that the gospel is best shared when you simply tell your story and introduce people to Jesus. And that's really what we're going to see in the second part of John chapter 9 today is the ability for people to be able to share their story and introduce them to Jesus. That was kind of the extent of the story from last week. The beginning of John chapter nine really is a story of a man who's been blind since birth. And he encounters Jesus and Jesus spits on the ground, creates some mud out of his spittle, takes it into his hands, wipes it on the guy's eyes, and then tells him to go wash his face. Now, if you reread that story, I don't think Jesus needed that last instruction of, hey, go wash your face. My guess is he would have done that on his own. <clears throat> but he says, go wash your face. And once you wash your face in this pool, the pool of Siloam, then you're, you, you will be healed. You will be able to see again. So he goes and he does that and he can see. And then he immediately goes home. And as he's going home, people are like, no, that's not him. There's no way that could be him. I, I, like He's been blind since birth. That can't be him. And then he says, no, yeah, it is I and they said, well, how can you see? And he said, the man that you call Jesus healed me. And that's really where we left off of the story, but this story really is the entire chapter nine of the book of John. And so we're gonna pick up here in verse 13. It says this, they brought, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Okay, this should immediately, if you have been following Jesus for a long time, put alarm bells going on in your head. The idea that this is a Sabbath, the Pharisees who were the re- religious leaders at the time loved to try to catch Jesus by breaking rules, breaking commandments, right? And so because of that, they said, hey, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, which they were gonna start trying to qualify as work and him breaking religious law at that point. So verse 15, therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. That's a real basic retelling of the story, right? He's like, this is a dude who has been blind since birth, and they're like, hey, how'd you see? And they're like, he put mud on my face, and I washed, period. So that's the story that he's, that he's telling to these guys. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath, right? They're like, hey, anybody who's going to come from God, anybody who's a part of God, they are going to follow Levitical law. They're going to follow the rules that we've set forth. And so if they break one of those rules, obviously there's no way that this person could be from God. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. This is the first time we see division among the Pharisees, okay? When not all of the Pharisees are like, yep, I agree. Jesus is a sinner. Jesus of the devil. Jesus, whatever. We see some people at this point saying, wait, hold on. How can he sin and still perform such signs? So these people were divided. Verse 17, then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. So let's look at this real quick, okay? The Pharisees bring him in for questioning. And the Pharisees are the the religious elite, like I said, the leaders of the Jewish faith at the time. So they bring the man in and they're trying to make the man admit that Jesus is guilty of working on the Sabbath. They don't care that this man has been cured. They don't care that he's been blind since birth and somebody miraculously fixed his sight. They don't care about that. They are trying to catch Jesus. They are obsessed with trying to catch Jesus so they can get rid of him. Because in all of the gospels, you'll recognize that Jesus is trying to upset the status quo. Because if what Jesus said is true, the religious leaders, the Pharisees at the time, are out of a job. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Okay? Jesus calls them snakes. He calls them vipers. He calls them all of these terrible names and saying, hey, look, like you are the opposite of what is supposed to be happening right now. So because of that, because of the fact that Jesus is trying to upset everything, the Pharisees are doing their best to trap him. And so they're trying to get the man to admit that Jesus is working on the Sabbath, and they don't care that he has been cured of an affliction that has plagued him since birth. They only, want, they only want to get Jesus in trouble, so they ask him if he healed on the Sabbath. Didn't this man heal on the Sabbath? The man's answer was a story. He simply told them what happened, like I said, in very basic terms. But the Pharisees weren't happy with that answer. They weren't okay with that answer. So they pressed him a bit more. They even tell him that the guy isn't from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. There's no way this guy is from God. There's no way he broke the rules of the Sabbath. That's not okay. There's no way that someone from God would break a rule of the Sabbath. There's a faction though, who start to believe what Jesus did because of this man's testimony. They rebut a little bit and ask him how a sinner could perform such signs and wonders. How could a man who is not close to God perform such signs and wonders? Heal a man of his chronic blindness. Do something so miraculous. So at this point, rather than looking at what Jesus had done, the Pharisees decide to discredit Jesus. That's their next play here. They decide to just simply discredit who he is so rather than looking at the evidence that was literally right in front of them they thought to themselves you know what we can't trust you blind man we can't trust you we were going to go and ask we're going to go and ask your parents as a matter of fact because you've obviously been fooled into thinking this nonsense there's no way that this is possibly true so we're going to go ask your parents okay junior hires high schoolers anybody relate right so we're going to go ask your parents Here's the interesting part of this. When people don't understand your transformation, when people have no answer for your transformation, and this is really where we landed last week, the idea that God has miraculously transformed, Jesus has miraculously transformed all of us. When people don't have an explanation or an understanding for why it is that you change, they often seek to discredit you. Saying things like the church is full of hypocrites, Let me be the first to say that's 100% true. Raise your hand if you're not a hypocrite. One hypocrite in the crowd, no, just kidding. Yeah, absolutely. We are all hypocrites. Why? Because we say one thing and we do another. Even the Apostle Paul talks about that. Paul was a hypocrite. Okay, we want to talk about the early church. We want to talk about things being messed up. The early church is full of hypocrites. The Apostle Paul was a hypocrite. The Apostle Peter, the foundation on whom Jesus was going to build his church, was what? A hypocrite. He even says, Hey, look, Peter says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Turn the page. He forsakes him three times in a row. We're hypocrites. That doesn't mean that what we believe isn't true though. And as we do our best to pursue God, we are going to do our best to pursue God. We will consistently come up short. And that's okay, that's where grace comes in. That's why we're thankful we don't live under the law. But people will try to discredit you. They'll say things like, the church is full of hypocrites. Why would you do such a thing? How could you be a part of that? Or or that's good, you're doing better now. I really hope that holds up, right? I've heard that one before. Mostly it's in a a conversation regarding our diets after January 1st, right? Hey, that's good, you've gone for a week. I really hope you can continue that, whatever it may be. But people try to immediately discredit you or try to discredit other people who have undergone this incredible life transformation. You know, one of my favorite recent converts, and this is gonna appeal to a younger audience, is a man by the name of Kanye West. Anybody know the name Kanye West? Any Kanye West fans? Okay, most of you probably weren't fans of Kanye West about eight months ago. Or at least if I asked if you knew who Kanye West was, you wouldn't raise your hand. Because Kanye West, he, uh, if you don't know who he is, he's, he's a hip-hop artist, probably one of the most profitable hip-hop artists in the entire world. Not only is he wildly successful, but a few years ago, Kanye West decided to proclaim the fact that he was God. He even has a song titled, I Am God, like I'm not making this up, okay? He was on, I think the cover of Newsweek or Time Magazine with a crown of thorns on his head. Like that's how delusional this guy had been, okay? Thinking that he was something incredible, something so much better than everyone else. But in November of 2019, something pretty incredible happened. November 2019, Kanye released an album called Jesus is King. And a lot of people immediately were like, what, Kanye's a Christian now? This is incredible. He started speaking out towards Jesus. He held an Easter Sunday service at some concert that he was, like like some festival that he was a part of and led people in worship. Like there were all these crazy things that Kanye happened to be doing, right? And immediately, as soon as I said Kanye West, a lot of you in here immediately went to, yeah, but yeah i mean yeah he says he's a christian right now but is that really gonna hold up is kanye really gonna follow through because we immediately seek to discredit people when we see a miraculous transformation it's the same reason that when you go to a play when you go to the theater people are waiting for someone to mess up right you ever realize that you go to the theater and somebody messes up, you're like, oh man, that was it. That was the mess up for tonight. Couldn't have been perfect. I'm not standing up at the end. I'm just gonna sit down and clap because they don't deserve that standing out, right? Like, like we immediately seek to discredit people. And the entire, like even as I was doing research on Kanye and when he came to faith and all these different things, even as I was doing research, the very first thing that came up on my computer when I Googled Kanye West conversion was will Kanye actually follow through from a Christian source. We seek to discredit people. If we are reading this story, not the Kanye story, the blind man story, and you assume that in this story, you were part of the group of people who said, oh no, no, yeah, I believe Jesus. My guess is that's not 100% true. My guess is there's actually a lot of people in here as Christians who look at other people's transformation, believe it's too good to be true and say, yeah, but. Yeah, but. And that's the sad part. Sad part isn't that Kanye fell away from faith a few months later. Actually, the opposite is true. Seems to be that his faith is growing. I'm not saying Kanye's theology is perfect. I'm not saying that he is a mature believer or anything like that. I'm saying it's not our responsibility to be able to judge the transformation of somebody else. It's our responsibility to walk alongside those people and make sure that they become mature Christians in the midst of their transformation. So man, if you're praying for for Kanye because he's an incredibly important figure now in the Christian movement, if you're praying for him, man, don't pray that he simply wouldn't fall away. Pray that there would be godly men who come alongside of him to speak truth into his life to tell him about about theological traps that are out there, to talk to him about about the the perversion of the health and wealth gospel, talk to him about all the things that really, truly matter. Stop doubting people's transformation. That's not your responsibility. That's not my responsibility. It actually sounds really familiar to what we're reading here. Because the Pharisees saw this transformation in this man's life, and they immediately began to discredit him. His neighbors immediately began to discredit him. Immediately began to say, that's not the same person. Immediately began to say, hold on, okay, well, uh, okay, yeah, your story's cute, but let me talk to your parents about this. They immediately began to do these things. The, the, the reality is, is Jesus is in the business of changing people's lives. It doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what you've done jesus changed lives and it isn't our job to question life change it is our job to walk alongside those people who have professed faith to encourage them even more deeply it doesn't matter if you used to be literally blind or metaphorically blind like kanye jesus is in the business of making people see Jesus in the business of making people see. But nevertheless, the Pharisees persisted. John 9, 18 to 23. They still did not believe that he had been blind, the Pharisees, and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. Ask him. He is of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So when the Pharisees began to push further into the man's story, when the Pharisees began to to ask his parents, they answered out of fear. They answered out of fear, not because they didn't recognize the miracle that had taken place, because they very, very surely did recognize the miracle that had taken place. He's blind, he's now, now he can see. Go ask him how that happened. They very clearly could see that. But they answered because they were afraid of what it was going to do to their lives. Now, they thought the Pharisees were gonna toss them out of the synagogue Saying yes to and boldly proclaiming Jesus comes at a cost. Are you willing to proclaim Jesus regardless of the cost? And can we just be, I mean, can we just be real for a second? Like being a Christian in America, you are not persecuted. You are not persecuted. Let me say it again. You are not persecuted, okay? Being a Christian in America is inconvenient. It is not persecuted. People may make fun of you. You may lose some social status. Maybe you lose some friends. Maybe people don't hang out with you at work anymore. Maybe people will block you on Facebook. You are not persecuted. And so when we talk about the idea that Jesus following Jesus comes at a cost, we need to understand what that cost means in our context. It does not look like loss of life in our context. It does not look like you getting beaten within an inch of death to follow Jesus. It looks like you feeling awkward for a couple minutes while you have a conversation with somebody. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus in America. Does it come at a cost? Yes, it comes at a cost. It absolutely comes at a cost. I remember my sophomore year, I was playing baseball. It was a terrible team, not just we were bad at baseball, but the group of guys who were together just wasn't a good group of people. And so I decided I was gonna make my team a Christian baseball team, because that's what I did, okay? Chico State baseball, you'll notice a the theme. Uh, anyway, so I remember having a conversation with a guy by the name of Matt Tolbert. I had known Matt since third grade. And Matt and I were having a conversation, and he's one of these guys who's just brilliant, like way too smart for his own good, didn't understand what to do with his thoughts and his beliefs and that sort of thing, had an answer for everything, and no one else could be right. So naturally, I decided to get into an argument with Matt. Um, And this argument started on on, on the team bus on the way to some game that we probably lost, and, and it ended with him simply saying, if you believe that, that's fairy tales, and there's no way that I can hang out with you. All right, bud, that's what I believe. And that's the extent of our persecution in America. For the most part. I think there's other things that may happen that could happen. Those things would be illegal. But that being said, that's the extent of persecution. And you need to understand that when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to sharing your story, the cost that it comes with is not so great that we should ever shy away from that story. One of my favorite things is when people come up and talk to me about the fact that, oh yeah, I would, take, uh, I would take a bullet for Jesus. I would take a bullet for the gospel. And they've never even talked to their neighbor? What? That doesn't make sense. Those two things don't line up at all. But the question then is, are you willing to proclaim Jesus regardless of the cost? that very small cost that we need to pay. It may look like saying no to friends and activities that you've been a part of for a long time. It may cost you social standing, but in the country that we live, we don't have to worry about a lot of repercussions other than simply becoming a social outcast. That's it. So why are we concerned? If you follow Jesus, you've said yes to Jesus. You've said yes to the healing that he brings. You've seen yes to miraculous transformation. Why are you so afraid to bring the healing to somebody else? Because of the fear of repercussions, because you won't have as many friends or followers on social media. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul reminds us of this, reminds us of this in Romans 1, 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But the Pharisees, regardless, press on, as the parents answer was a dead end. 24 to 34, a second time they summoned the man who was blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. It chills just reading that line. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Love, love that. Then they hurled insults at him. I wonder why. And said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. He just straight takes everything they're doing and just throws it back at them. Just throws it back at them with a little sarcastic quip in the middle there. What, do you want to be his disciples too? <laughs> so we moved into the son at this point, right? The man, we, we moved to the son, the man who was born blind and we want to know kind of, kind of his opinion is of Jesus. And they say, we know that this man is a sinner. Give glory to God, they're saying, tell the truth. You know, what they, what they say kind of reminds me of a, like a sneaky police detective, right? When you see it in like some of those movies and that sort of thing, they're like, come on, we already know you did it. We've got someone in the next room who's admitted everything. Just admit it. Just admit it. Like, no, what? You don't even, how is that the thing? So the Jews who had just been shown to be divided on the question of Jesus now declare with overconfidence So before they were divided, now they declare with overconfidence that we know this man is a believer. They have forgotten intentionally about the dilemma that they've gotten themselves into. See, on one hand, Jesus had performed a miracle. And on the other hand, he had done it on the Sabbath against the traditions of the Pharisees. So is he of God or is he a sinner? The Jews say, we know that this man is a sinner, But what does the formerly blind man himself say? What is his opinion? He responds again with brevity. Whether he is a sinner, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, is that I was blind and now I see. I don't know all the theology. I don't know exactly where he came from. I don't know any of that stuff. What I do know is that he showed up in my life and I was miraculously transformed because of it. I used to be blind. He came along, rubbed some spit mud on my eyes, and now I see. That's all I know. So for you to say that he is not of God, man, you are wrong. Why? Not because of his perfect theology, not because he's studied in every single Bible study that his synagogue had to offer forever, but because he recognized the transformation that Jesus had made in his life. And he said, look, I don't know the answers to all of those things, but I will tell you. I will tell you, I was blind and now I see. I've been transformed by this man. There's no way he is not from God. This man's interaction with Jesus has brought him to a conclusion that Jesus is God in the same way, in the same way your miraculous transformation should bring you to the conclusion that Jesus is God. your personal transformations. And Jesus catches on to what's going on. <clears throat> and he gets a chance to, uh, to hang out with the blind man for the first time since he healed him earlier in the chapter. If you recall last week, I said, Jesus made spit mud, rubbed it on his eyes and rubbed it on the guy's eyes. And before he washed off and can see Jesus bounced. He was out of there. So Jesus and the blind man have never met. I mean, the blind man had never seen Jesus's face. They had never talked since this miracle actually happened. And so now we get an opportunity to see the two interact, starting in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, that they had thrown the blind man out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that that I might believe in him. Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe and what he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who, will, those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains he's going back to this idea that the Pharisees had said at the very beginning of this chapter, someone sinned to make this man blind. Was it the man or was it his parents? And Jesus is going all the way back to that initial conversation. And, he, and when they ask, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. That was the original question being posed is who sinned in this man's life. Jesus answers it all the way at the last verse of this chapter saying, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sinned. It wouldn't have been because of sin. But now that you claim to see, oh buddy, your guilt remains. The man who has professed that Jesus is God now gets to have the encounter with Jesus. And after talking with him incredibly briefly, the man recognizes that this is indeed God and does the only appropriate thing, he begins to worship him, the only appropriate thing. And this is how we're gonna wrap this thing up today. Each and every one of you, myself included, has a story of life transformation that's worth telling. I don't care if you don't even remember a time when you weren't a Christian or if you have a better testimony than Kanye, I don't care. Every single one of you who proclaims faith in Christ has a story of transformation to tell. For a long time, I struggled with telling my story because it seemed anticlimactic. It seemed like nobody needed to hear another story of someone who was born in a Christian household, was raised in church, came to faith at eight years old, and has never really strayed that far. But what my story does include is my crisis of faith that happened when I was 17 years old. What my story does include was losing my dad when I was 22. What my story does include is the hardships of being a dad of five very energetic children. My story includes those things and how I have walked with Christ in and among those situations. Your story is unique. No two-person story is exactly alike. The story of miraculous transformation that has gone on in your life is one that you should cherish and one that you should completely and totally just embrace. Your story of miraculous transformation is worth telling to those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. It's an encouragement to those who are downtrodden. It's a hope to those who feel hopeless. Your story should lead lead other people to the feet of Jesus. You recognize this this guy's story, this blind man's story. He says, look, I was blind, I met Jesus, he did some stuff, and now I see. That's his story. And they said, well, who is Jesus? They said, I don't know. Ask him. He leads them to the feet of Jesus. He just says, hey, look, it was Jesus who did this. It's the man that you call Jesus that did this. All I can speak to is what he's done in my life. All I can speak to is the miraculous transformation that he has done in my life. Your story, his story is the most effective tool you have for sharing the gospel. We talk about the idea of oikos quite a bit. And oikos, if you're new with us, uh, it's a Greek word that means household. Household. In everybody's oikos, we believe that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed 8 to 15 people within your oikos. And your responsibility is to those 8 to 15 people to share your story, to talk to them about your miraculous transformation, the transformation that you have had in your life because of what Jesus has done. I don't care what your story is. It's your story. God has given you that in your toolbox to be able to proclaim his name. You know the truth? No one can argue with your story. No one can. And so when they say, well, how can a a good God condemn people to hell forever? You know, you say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Or maybe you have the theological fortitude to be able to answer that question, but you can simply say, I don't know. All I know is that this is who I was, I met Jesus, and this is who I am now. I don't know. And that's an acceptable answer. And we get so nervous about stuff like that. And you can even say, hey, I I don't know the answer to that question. I'll go ask Pastor Jeff about it. But what I do know is this is what Jesus has done in my life. That's what I know. Imagine, man, if, we, if the church just got busy simply telling this story to the world. Got busy telling our own stories to the world and didn't worry about how much knowledge we had stored up here because you have more than anybody in the history of the universe regarding Jesus. You didn't worry about looking foolish because that's the extent of your persecution here in America. You are simply worried about the fact that there are people who are physically and metaphorically blind walking around on earth who don't yet know who Jesus is and your story could deliver them. That's what we need to be concerned with is your story. Your story may look a little bit, maybe about like my favorite testimony. My favorite testimony is actually found in the Bible. It's Acts 26. So if you want to flip there, feel free. You don't have to. I'm going to read it to you. It's about 20-something verses long. So I know it's at the end of my message, and you guys are all like, what, 20 verses at the end of it?" Just bear with me. Paul here is on trial in front of King Agrippa. King Agrippa is actually the great-grandson of King Herod. King Herod is the same king that tried to kill baby Jesus a long, long time before this. And Paul simply tells the story of who he was. They are trying to catch Paul again. They're trying to catch one of his believers, persecute him, put him to death. And they're like, hey, tell us your story. Tell us about Jesus. And this is what Paul says, starting in verse 4. He says this. Listen, he talks about who he was, right? He says this. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they've known me for a long time and can testify if they're willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. It's like, look, you know who I, who I was. Ask anybody. This is exactly who I was. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise of our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa It's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Saying, look, this is what you promised. This is what God had promised a long time ago. We knew this was coming, so why are you questioning it now? Verse nine, he continues. He says, look, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priest. I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. This is Paul talking about who he used to be. And now here's his interaction with Jesus. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. who saying, hey, look, I went on one of these journeys under your, the, these guys' authority. And about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven. It was brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. And we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles." I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And now it talks about how he is different since that interaction. So then, verse 19, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient from, to the vision from heaven First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. It's even why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here to testify to a small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer as the the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul just tells his story. He says what happened, look, this is who I was. I encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and listened to what he had to say, and now I'm telling you about it. That's Paul's testimony. That's Paul's story in the same way that the blind man told his story, in the same way that we need to be telling our story. Church, what would it look like if we just simply told our story and left the rest up to Jesus? Stop trying to save people, that's not your job. It's above your pay grade. You simply need to tell your story and introduce people to Jesus. That's his responsibility, not ours. If you don't have an Oikos card, we have those. They're out on, uh, in the front at our guest services table. There, there's 15 spots. It's super simple. You could fill out those 15 spots. You pray for people who don't yet know Jesus. There's, I mean, there's a ton of opportunity for you to do it. Pick one up. Throw it in your Bible. Pray for those people. Every time you open up your Bible, which I hope is more than once a week, pray for those people and do your best to be intentional about simply telling your story about how Jesus has miraculously transformed your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our stories. Thank you for, oh man, thank you for each and every individual's unique story. Whether it's like mine, whether it's like Kanye's, whether it's like somebody else who just completely and totally has a different story. God, you put those stories in place for us to be able to relate to other people, to be able to tell other people how it is that we encountered you. God, allow us to be okay with not having all of the answers. Allow us to be okay not understanding all of the theology, but don't let those things make it a hindrance to sharing our faith, to sharing our story with other people because the news is too important. What your son did on our behalf is too important that we simply need to be about your business and tell our story about miraculous life change that you, you did in us. Allow us to be bold in that, Father. God, we also pray for those in here who maybe, maybe they haven't been a part of a story yet, that their story really is just before they came to know you. If that's you in here this morning with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, and you say, hey, you know what? This is it. This is my road to Damascus. This is my healing of my eyes. This is it. I want to turn and, and follow Jesus this morning. Just pray along with me. Simply, we pray the ABCs here. We say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I know I'm messed up. I know I am blind. I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Be, I believe that you sent your son to the cross to follow me. God, that that your son on the cross has reconciled us to you forever. That he's conquered death on our behalf. So Father, we believe that and see, we choose to follow you every single day of our lives. And part of that is telling our story to other people. God, make us bold. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.